Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. Welcome to this podcast. This is going to be about the life and times of Tim Hill. In this series of podcasts, I'm going to take you through my life from birth to retirement. I will be covering some of the major events in my life and some of the successes and failures that I've had during my lifetime. So sit back, strap yourself in, it's going to be a bit of a bumpy ride. Welcome to episode six of the life and times of Tim Heal. In the last episode, we just moved from Berlin and we've just arrived in Londonderry, Northern Ireland. Denise, Corinne and I moved into 52 Nelson Drive on the waterside of Londonderry. The house itself was a two-bedroomed terraced house on a small estate just outside of Londonderry itself. The house was cold, damp and in comparison to the opulent palace that we'd come from, was a real climb down, a real disappointment. Denise hated it from the moment we moved in, but we were stuck there. There was nothing else we could do. The good thing was it was only about a mile from camp, so it meant I could walk into work every day or run into camp every day. There's a reason that they call it the Emerald Isle. It rains a lot, which means that you have to have the heating on all the time. And with electric storage heaters, it was quite expensive to run the house. The estate itself was a bit on the run downside and it was a mix of civilian and military. Just a short distance away, there was a local spa shop, but the main shopping was down on the waterside itself, just down past camp. So the day after we arrived was my first day in at work. I walked down to camp that day, walked in through the main gates and thought, is this it? It was a bit of a ramshackled place. The camp itself was made up of several buildings there was large buildings and small buildings. The main headquarter building, and I guess some of the accommodation, looked over the square, which looked over into Londonderry City itself. So if you look from the square back into camp, the main building on the right-hand side was where battalion headquarters and the orderly room and ops room were situated, and that's where I worked. Some of my main duties at that time was as a filing clerk and also I produced the battalion part one orders. These are the orders for the day for the battalion. I had to type them up on a skin and then put the skin onto a Gestetna machine. Uh, it was a rotary printer and I used to print off all the copies that were distributed across the battalion. Along with printing off the battalion part one orders, there was also operational orders that had to be printed up and they were typed up on the same Gestetna skins and printed off on the same machine, which kept me quite busy. And once or twice a week, I would be the duty clerk for the battalion, and this entailed a 24-hour duty, and halfway through the night, you'd get the ops report for the previous day, which had to be typed up and then printed off and then sent off to brigade headquarters. Some nights, if we'd had a busy day the previous day, we would be up all night printing this up and it wouldn't get finished until sort of the very late, early hours. 
One of the big issues with these Gestetner machines is they're very temperamental. They don't take to rough handling. And you could always tell if somebody else had been tampering with it because I'd have a job and half trying to get it to work properly. Some of the big problems were they put too much ink into it and it made a real, real mess. Other times they didn't put enough in and it was running dry. And then the skins themselves, if if you was a bit rough with them, they felt the bits, which entailed having to retype the whole thing again. Just some of the dramas that one has to deal with as a clerk. Being a clerk that worked in the battalion headquarters, you were quite often exposed, shall we say, to classified information that you had to keep to yourself because it affects a lot of people. A lot of this classified information came in the form of the ops report and it often affected different individuals and quite often people that you actually know. So you had to keep your own counsel as a clerk. I got news at the end of January that my grandmother had just died on the 28th and the problem that I had was I was unable to travel back for the funeral because we were so busy at work during this period of time with the relief in place happening. So I was devastated I couldn't go. So by the end of February 1981, the whole battalion was fully operational in Northern Ireland. It was around about March, I think, that we decided that we are going to get a dog. Well, this ended up as two dogs. I ended up with a Doberman, and Denise ended up with an Irish Wolfhound. So we found this breeder that bred Dobermans that we went to see just outside Limavady. He also had Irish Wolfhounds there. Well, that was it. Once Denise seen the, the Wolfhounds, she was going to have one. So we ended up with Duke and Wolfie. Both dogs had very good pedigrees and came from very good breeding stock. So we decided that we were going to show them. During the summer of 1981, we entered the dogs into two or three of the popular dog shows in the area, and we eventually got qualified to go to Shorts, which is the big, big dog show of Northern Ireland. It's like the Crufts of Northern Ireland. It's a championship show. And we showed both dogs at that show, and they both came out fairly well especially Duke. He eventually went on to be an Irish champion and became a popular stud dog. During the early part of 1981, on the operational front, the battalion was quite busy, the Bobby Sands hunger strike. In the 60-odd days leading up to his death, there was an awful lot of civil unrest, particularly down in Belfast, but we also saw the repercussions up in Londonderry. It was a source of a lot of reports on the Daily Ops report. I can remember on the day of his funeral, uh, which was around about the 5th of May, I think, 1981, there was over 100,000 people attended the funeral. And we also saw an awful lot of repercussions up in Londonderry. There was a lot of rioting on the streets that particular day in protest at what happened. It was all brought about by Margaret Thatcher taking away the political status of the IRA prisoners and then just earmarking them as cowardly terrorists that they were. Back at home, the dogs were growing up fast, and Duke in particular was very protective of Corinne. Wolfie was just growing and growing. He was massive. Corinne had had a habit of getting Wolfie, getting him on a lead, and then taking him out, particularly around the garden. Occasionally, she would escape and be found walking up around the road. Anyway, I'd got to know a guy around the corner, a guy called Dave, who was ex-army. He'd married a local girl and moved in. 
and he used to help us out with walking the dogs occasionally, particularly when I was on duty. This particular day, Corinne had managed to hook Duke up and take him for a walk. Anyway, David found him up the garages and tried to bring him back. The only problem was he couldn't get anywhere near Corinne because Duke wouldn't let him. It's quite amusing at the time, and I'd had to be fetched up from work to get her back in. It must have been around about September 1981 that Denise became pregnant again. She was adamant that she wasn't going to have the baby in Northern Ireland, so she was going to go home to Hatfield to have the baby. That wouldn't have been too much of a drama in itself. Anyway, a little bit more of that shortly. We ended up spending Christmas and New Year in Ireland, and it was quite quite a good Christmas all in all. So it was quiet with just the three of us and the two dogs. And we had a little bit of time off over Christmas. I think Corinne enjoyed it. She got some nice presents. We got some presents sent over from home. The one thing about the posting in Northern Ireland is that nobody really wants to come and visit, which was good in our books, because we didn't really have the room to put them up. As we were getting into 1982, things had started to kick off down in the Falklands, with Argentina forces taking over the island. So there was a big build-up in the first half of 1982 from about sort of February, March, which for us in Northern Ireland meant taking a back seat. Now with the focus on the task force, it was on the news every day, the IRA decided that they weren't getting enough publicity and they started to kick off in Northern Ireland with lots and lots of little different incidents all over the province. And we had our fair share up in Londonderry. Because of the heightened tensions in Northern Ireland, it was decided that Denise were to go back slightly earlier than she had planned. I think it must have been about the middle of May 1982 that Denise and Corinne and Wolfie went back to England, back to Hatfield. Uh, She was about a month, about eight months gone by then, and with about a month left before Anne-Marie was born, was a good time for her to go back, which left me in Northern Ireland with Duke. By this time, Duke used to come to work with me and he'd just sit underneath a desk. He was a very well-trained dog. I didn't need to use the lead with him and he'd just walk to heel all the time. Because of his good nature and his success in a show ring, he'd become quite a catch as a stud dog. And he used to go up to a lady called Betty who had a bit of a farm and a stud. And he used to go up there for a few days at a time and do a bit of studying. Betty also used to take him down into Southern Ireland and show him down there, and he became an Irish champion. With the Falklands War coming to an end, things in Northern Ireland hadn't eased off at all. In fact, they probably got worse. And it was on the 18th of June, 1982, that Anne-Marie was born in Hatfield. It was about three or four weeks later that I finally managed to get a bit of leave to go over and see them. But before that had happened, I'd received a letter asking for a divorce. I think her mother had an awful lot to do with it. When I got home to Hatfield, I got a really frosty reception, particularly from her family. I was a real bad guy. Don't know what I'd done wrong. Anyway, there was nothing much I could do about it. I had to go back to Northern Ireland. I had to leave them there. Wolfie at this time had been put up by my dad. My dad was looking after him. And I think it was some time later that it was decided that they could no longer look after him and he went off to Oxford Wolfhound Rescue. I don't know what happened to him after that. Because of the frosty reception I got from Denise and her family, 
I never really found out what was at the bottom of it all. And that was it. I was staring at divorce in the face. Back in Northern Ireland, I couldn't keep Duke. So Betty had offered to take him off my hands and, and keep him for me. Once Duke was up at Betty's, I then cleaned the quarter out, handed it back, and then I had to move into camp. This was a really low point in my life. I'd lost just about everything. I'd lost my daughter, I'd lost my wife, I'd lost my house, and I'd lost my dog. And now, it was affecting my work. It wasn't long after that I got called into the adjutant's office, and he said to me, your work's being affected. We're going to have to move you from battalion headquarters and put you across to headquarter company, and you'll have to work in the QM stores. So effectively, I'd lost my job as well. Life couldn't get any worse. Or could it? The work in the QM's department consisted of checking receipts and issues documents, entering them in onto a ledger and then signing them off. I must have signed my signature about a thousand times a day. Consequently, I was getting RSI in my hand. I guess it was around about the August of 1982 that the battalion got to find out where it was going to go next. It was going to be going to Hyderabad Barracks in Colchester. It was about September, I got called into the adjutant's office, and he says to me that, um, you're not coming to Colchester, we've got a posting for you. You're going to be going to Sennybridge as a clerk to a new unit that's formed there. Don't know all the details, but you're to report there on the 8th of October. The final blow. The battalion didn't want me. And just to cap it all off, I was having some real trouble with my Ford Escort estate. I managed to get rid of that, and I got another Ford, but this time it was a Ford Escort Mark I. So there I was. Everything packed up. My room handed in, and on the 7th of October, I drove over to Larne, got a ferry across the Stranra, and I was on my way down to Sennybridge. The only instructions that I had on my posting order was that I had to report to the AHGC, and got a clue what that meant, at Sennybridge Camp, Brecon Powers. I arrived at Sennybridge early hours of the morning. The guard at the gate says, there's nobody until about 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning. You might as well just go and park outside the RSM's office. So that's what I did. Now, bearing in mind that I've just driven all the way from Stranra down to Sennybridge overnight. I've had no sleep, or very little. I'm unshaven, and I'm looking a little bit dishevelled. The RSM comes in, RSM Davis, Welsh Guards. He's got a big handlebar moustache, and he's a proper, proper Welshman. Anyway, he's seen me at loitering around his office, and he's, he's given me the old, what are you doing here, boy I said, I've been posted here, sir. He said, let's have a look at your posting order, is it? So I'll give him my posting order. Oh, you want um, you want Captain Taggart. If you go to the top of the road there, hang a right, there's a porter cabin on the right, and he'll, you'll find him in there. He's all dressed in black. Okay, I says. Thank you very much, sir. Leave to carry on, sir, please. Go on, then, son. Go on, clear off. So I've gone up the road, I've hang a right, and I've found a porter cabin. I've gone in there. And there's this Captain Taggart, Royal Engineers. I said, morning, sir. I've come to see you. I'm posted here. You couldn't have met such a nice bloke in your life. He welcomed me with open arms and was really happy to see me. 
and we got on great. Anyway, he says to me, come and have a cup of tea and I'll explain all about what the job entails and what's expected of you. I said, if you don't mind me asking, sir, what is AHGC? I always said, it's the Army Hang Gliding Centre. I said, what's hang gliding? He said, all in good time. So he makes me a cup of tea and we sit down and we have a nice long chat and he explains to me exactly what hang gliding is all about. And he said, oh, would you be interested in learning to fly? I said, yeah, would, sir. Sounds like right up my street. So that is how I got into hang gliding. So we'll cover that next. I was to spend the next three years at the hang gliding centre and it became the Joint Services Hang Gliding Centre. I'd only been there a few weeks when I got put onto one of the courses and I learned to hang glide and never looked back. For anybody that has never been to Sennybridge, Sennybridge is a transit battle camp and it's used essentially for people that are going up onto the ranges. The problem with being permanent staff on the camp is that there's no permanent cookhouse. There's a temporary cookhouse at the bottom end of camp that we used to eat most of the time when small units were in. But when they weren't in and the, the main cookhouse was closed, we used to eat in the sergeant's mess. They had had a full-time cook in there. So we used to eat in there most of the time. My accommodation was in a porter cabin. One of the problems you get with a small unit like this is the staff. There's two types of staff. There's guys like myself that are keen, that want to get on and do stuff. And then the guys that are just using it as a stepping stone into transitioning out of the British Army. These guys aren't interested in what they're doing. All they're interested in is their transition and their resettlement. We had a few of these guys come through. There was a, a corporal of the Royal Welsh, I think it was, or a Welsh Guards. Um, we had a sergeant major from the Welsh Guards, um, and they, they were more of a hindrance than a help. But they kept out of our hair most of the time and just let us get on with it. So eventually, I learnt to hang glide, and I was going out as often as I could to get up on the hills and fly. Once I got several hours under my belt, I, I took my first pilot's licence on the road to becoming an instructor myself. I've been there for about a year and I got put onto an instructor's course hosted by the British Hang Gliding Association and run by the permanent training officer and the elected training officer at Krakowl. Having passed my instructor's course, I was now spending more and more of my time up on hills every day, running up and down with students and teaching people to the basics of hang gliding. I also used to do the induction when guys turn up on the first day of the course and I brief them up on what was expected during the course or I gave a lecture on part that weather plays in hang gliding. Hang gliding is a very weather-dependent activity. So when it wasn't flyable, I used to go out and do a lot of hill walking. It was in the summer of 1983 that we did our first expedition, Exercise Draken Locksmith and we were going to go down to Italy, and we were going to fly in the Dolomites. We were based out of a US air base at Aviano, and we used to travel up into the, the foothills of the, the Dolomites every day to fly. We had some fantastic flying up there, and I learned an awful lot. Back in Sennybridge, one of my main responsibilities was I was the membership link between the Army Hang Gliding Association and the British Hang Gliding Association. 
and I spoke to them on almost a daily basis, reference Guy's membership of the British Hang Gliding Association. In 1984, we had a hang gliding expedition to Spain. There was around about 12 pilots and three vehicles, and the chief instructor from the hang gliding centre came down as well, and we flew several different sites while we were down there, and the, the last site that we flew was a place called Asia in Spain, and the takeoff was quite a precarious little takeoff at about 4,000 metres above sea level, just opens up out into the valley. And I took off there one day just, just before lunch, uh, expecting just to have a sled ride down, have lunch, and then come back up for a, a, an evening flight where the whole valley floor just lifts and you can just spend a, a, an hour or two just cruising around. It was quite thermic this particular day. And as I took off, I got hit by a thermal and it just took me up and up and up and up reached around about three or 4,000 feet above the takeoff. It was pretty chilly out there. The oxygen levels were getting a bit low, and I spent most of my time trying to find the downdraft to the thermals, and I got kicked around for, for about three hours before I finally arrived in the, the bottom landing field in a heap. But all in all, it was a really good expedition, and I learned an awful lot. Once we were back in the Senny Bridge, things got back to sort of normal. I was out flying one evening with Captain Taggart. He was test flying somebody's glider for him, and we were up at Hay Bluff, and it's a, a ridge just outside Hay and Y, I guess, and you can take off halfway up to be able to get the lift and then saw the ridge. We were both flying on this ridge, and we're doing really smooth, smooth conditions this evening, and we are putting in some sort of fairly big turn, wing overturns at each end of the this ridge. I can remember looking back as I was I was doing a wing over to come back round and Captain Taggart had done the same thing underneath me and then all of a sudden he parted company with his hang glider and fell around about 250 metres or so uh, to his death. And the hang glider that he was on just carried round and crashed into the side of the hill. It later transpired that what he'd done was he'd clipped in above where he should have clipped in on his harness and with a g-force load his carabiner stripped the, the the hang loop and that's why he fell to his death after that hang loops were compulsory to be continuous loops rather than just stitched together very very sad time it was shortly after this that the whole hang gliding centre moved down to RF St. Athen. Somebody thought it was a good idea because hang gliding was flying and flying should be under the auspices of the RAF. So they moved us down to St. Athen, which entailed a good two-hour drive every morning and evening just to get up to the flying sites, not our finest hour. However, our accommodation down there was quite good. I mean, the food was excellent in the cookhouse, obviously being the RAF, getting five-star treatment. Our office accommodation was in a small brick build building just by the runway. And at that time, they were still servicing the Vulcans. And every time a Vulcan took off, it almost rattled the windows out of our office. Deafening to hear. And the whole building shook. Anyway, with the loss of Captain Taggart, 
I took on a little bit more responsibility for liaising with the British Hang Gliding Association. And Sandra was the membership secretary that I used to chat to down there. And we got really chatty. I hadn't actually ever met her, but I had called to take a load of documents down to the British Hang Gliding Association that at that time was in Great Horwood. And it was set up, the office was set up at the back room of Sandra's house. So I'd arranged to come down and meet Sandra with all this stuff. We, we'd built up a, quite a good relationship over the last 18 months or so. And she was really chatty and flirty on the phone. Anyway, to cut a long story short, we got together. That was it. It was like love at first sight. Unbeknown to me at the time, Sandra had been married before and had two children, Sarah and Mark. Her husband, Howard, had been killed in 1982 in a hang gliding accident over at Quainton in Buckinghamshire. So she was a widow. And my divorce had already come through several months beforehand. So I suggested that um, maybe we look at get together and maybe get married. As I was coming to the end of my posting with the hang gliding centre, I was due to go back to the battalion. The battalion had already moved from Colchester to Seller in Germany and they were due to be in Seller for the next five or six years. In fact, they ended up being there for seven years. But Sandra didn't want to, to move to Germany. And I didn't really want to have a long-distance relationship. We'd already had that. So I decided to put my termination in and leave the army. Sandra and Howard had set up and run the Dunstable School of Hand Gliding. And that's where he trained Dave, who was to become my best mate. But Dave, at the time, he was the training officer for the British Hand Gliding Association. So he was elected onto the committee as a training officer. He was also a league pilot, so he was one of the sky gods. I was also an active member with the South East Wales Hang Gliding Club, and I became their editor for the Wingover magazine that came out once a month. And in there, I used to put articles or pieces of news when I was up on the hills. Any of the league pilots that were seen at the time, I'd put a piece in there, sky god seen at some particular hill. And Dave and Bob just happened to be two league pilots that were up there a lot. So they got lots of mentions. We'd been at St. Athen for a few months and it was blatantly obvious that it wasn't working. We were too far away from the flying sites. So by the time the guys got up there in the morning, they'd lost half a day. And by the time they got back in the evening, they'd either missed the evening meal or they'd missed flying. So it's pretty impractical. So there was a plan put in place for us to move the whole of the centre up to Krakow to what was the Royal Welsh Depot at Cortacotlan, which is just outside Krakow. Unfortunately for me, this move happened just after I'd left the centre. I spent my last couple of months in the army on resettlement and I was stopping down at Zandra's. One of my courses that I did was a, a four-week course up in Liverpool or Aintree, at a school called Artec. And I did my Class 1 heavy goods licence and my Class 1 bus licence with these guys as a pre-release course. The last exped that I took part in, we went up to Lossiemouth in Scotland and we were flying in Scotland. There were some really nice sights. We were doing some dune bashing off the, the coast of Scotland there and we were also flying some sights inland over the River Spey. It was a really lovely time. 
But I'd driven up there with my van. I'd had a, a Volkswagen Combi van and I took a load of training gliders up with me. So I had about six or seven hang gliders on the top, plus my own hang glider. It was a long old trip. It was even a longer trip on the way back down because the boss who came up with me wanted dropping off in Oban because he was going to go across to Mull where his family lived. So I dropped him off in Oban and then I drove all the way back down to, to St. Athen by myself. I'd had my resettlement interview a couple of weeks prior to going up to Scotland and one of the things that the resettlement officer said to me had I thought about joining the TA when I left the army. Well, on the drive back down, I thought, that sounds like a good idea. There's a, there's a TA unit not far from where we were at Hitchin, being 2-1 SAS. So I thought, I'm pretty fit, I'm running up and down hills all the time. I'll give selection a go. So I put some plans in place for when I got out to go and do selection with 2-1 SAS. Ever since my back injury, I concentrated on my fitness. Right from when I came out of hospital, or came out of Chesington, I used to go do quite a bit of running. I used to go to the gym quite a bit, and I built up my strength in my back. About a year before I was due to leave the army, once I put my papers in, I had to go for a pre-release medical, at which time they upgraded me. So I was back to full fitness. So there I was, on the 4th of April 1985, having completed 10 years, 243 days, I was no longer a soldier. I was ex-military, because I could never go back to being a civilian. Once you've been in the military, you can never be a civilian. You can only be ex-military. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and I look forward to the next episode. I'll take you through what happened on my selection, and how I tried to fit in in civilian life. So for now, thank you for listening. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.